0: Thank you. Welcome to Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Join us as we cover conservation updates, tips and tricks to campfire chats. Hey
1: everyone, Kyle Stelter here from the Wild Sheep Society, the past present. I'd like to welcome you to episode number six where Talk is Sheep. So today this is a pretty cool one. Um, we got somebody on board uh on the call today that i'm super stoked about um shane shane Pallister, welcome to the to talk his sheep so hey howdy Ways.
2: uh awesome glad to be here
1: <laughs> totally stoked buddy um you know we had uh, our show in uh uh in kamloops march 13th i think was the date i think it was march 12th we were all sitting around and uh you'd come down you were gonna be one of our you were gonna be our friday night speaker and uh totally stoked about it and hear your stories and uh and uh, i guess it was the thursday night before that i I think it was maybe march 11th we had to pull the pin on it and then we sat around and had some adult uh, beverages and talked uh, talked a bunch of trash and it was just
2: fantastic (laughs) and i think that was it that was the night that they canceled it we i mean we just got there and then they they
1: exactly it
2: was going to be canceled so
1: well in fact it was that room we were sitting in that room we made the decision and uh, I texted you and said, hey, yeah, we're we're in trouble here. Oh, so yeah,
2: that's right. Come yeah. down.
1: <laughs> the uh, sympathy pops. So uh, that was a pretty cool night to to uh, shoot the shit with you there. And uh, so anyway, uh, welcome to the show. Um, great to have you. I guess you're at home in up, up north in Fort St. John, or what's what's the story there?
2: Yeah, up in BC. We're sitting in a sideways blizzard this morning. Uh, went out elk hunting today, and nothing, nothing was out but us.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the die-hard hunters are out. The animals aren't, but the die-hard hunters are. Out.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah.
2: How about you, Steve? What's but going I've on? I've had there? luck. I've had luck on some of the worst days, so.
1: Yeah. But
0: it's we we've had snow for about two weeks, and all of a sudden it's sideways rains. So I'm in Prince George, so we're we're not too far apart, Shane. But yeah, it's it's chucking rain,
1: and it's just goopy and gross out there. Good times. So I guess it's that time of year, right? So um, yeah, but. Uh, So Shane, a bit of a weird year, right? Like lots going on. Um, You know, we were just talking before we started recording here about um, hunts and stuff. And uh, so um, what's, what's happening in your world? What's happening hunt wise? I know you're doing a bunch of guiding, but uh, are are you, is COVID messing you up or what's going on there?
2: Well, um, I'm a dual citizen. So for me, traveling across the border hasn't been an issue. I'm kind of one of the lucky ones as far as travel goes. So. I've been working as a guide up in Alaska in the fall for the last several years, and uh, uh, went up and did some work up around Healy, just around Denali Park in the Alaska Range this year. Um, they had a lot of uh, American clients come, but any of the international ones, they had a lot of trouble with. Um, Alaska had a, a mandatory test policy before you before you could come in, so that's I think that's how they kind of tackled that but um I mean as far as hunting goes we had we had a pretty busy, busy season um there was uh there wasn't I mean once you're back out in the backcountry in Alaska COVID wasn't really an issue nobody paid any attention to the you know to what was going on out in the real world Dif- different planet back there
1: <laughs> Good place to be right
2: oh it was great yeah it was amazing I mean un- unfortunately they had a really heavy snowfall last year so I think they had six or eight feet in March at one time and a lot of the older rams pretty much succumbed to that they couldn't couldn't get through it so there was a lot of a lot of young sheep but not many old sheep that were left and we found several dead heads you know that kind of thing okay yeah um so Shane you, you
1: mentioned the dual citizenship there and I know there's a big backstory there on on your family and stuff so let's talk a little bit about that, like. Uh, yeah I, I know you've talked before to me about your dual citizenship how does that work like talk about your your upbringing where you came from and and I guess you know since we're talking about wild sheep and and hunting and talk about your background there and how that works how does that all sure, come that?
2: Um, in in Montana my, my um, in Mon- I was born in Montana. Um, my dad, Greg Pallister, was uh, went to school for bio- to be a biologist. He wanted to be a wildlife biologist. So during the course of his uh, college, he decided to write a thesis on bighorn sheep. So um, he made the decision to move us up to a ranger station in the Bear Mountains in Daisy Pass. So for two years of my, you know, adolescent life, you know, three to five, I think, four to, four to six, something like that. We were living in a, you know, up up, pretty high elevation and pretty remote. And I was going around with him all the time. He was doing uh, sheep counts. They were collaring sheep. He was doing uh, forage studies, all, all sorts of kind of really in-depth Kind of coverage of this herd that was living in a really kind of insane part of Montana, you know, very inaccessible, very steep, very remote. So he spent a lot of time doing aerial studies or, or aerial um, tracking of them and that that kind of thing. And one of the one of the rams that was kind of habituating around that area was a ram with a he had a fluorescent orange collar and everybody called him the red ram it was maybe a six six six-year-old bighorn but I was just completely enthralled with that sheep (laughs) and somewhere I have a drawing of it you know a drawing of this ram and it's got a crosshair on it at five years old I drew a crosshair on it (laughs) so I mean I kind of fell in love with sheep you know very early age and then during the course of my dad ended up getting a job as a biologist and uh was doing some some work you know with sheep and after the season he and another fellow decided to go up and go hunting and and cleared it with his boss you know and everything and they both got rams but uh there was somebody caught wind of them hunting and because they were biologists they figured they shouldn't be hunting like everybody else so they threw up a big stink and created a kind of a little publicity problem for him, and his boss turned around and said, "I never told him they could go," and so it ended up causing him troubles as far as that went. Kind of soured him on the wildlife biology, and then he went on to work for the Department of Agriculture, and and this this would have been after kind of the precursor to the health problems I had growing up when I was a little little kid. We were, we were kind of on easy street as far as that went at that time, you know, he kind of had his family organized. Um, when I was, when I was one and a half, I was um, diagnosed with cancer. I had a nerve, nerve cancer in my back and uh, we traveled over to uh, Madison, Wisconsin and actually my grandfather was a, a geneticist a very kind of renowned doctor and my uncle also was a was a pretty renowned doctor and some of my 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 grandpa's friends and they they were the ones that operated on me and uh, took the tumor out and when i was 3 it came back again and they took the same tumor out again and then they took the muscle around it and then they radiated the whole thing with like the old Bruce Banner, Hulk-style radiation. (laughs) Not the kind of stuff they use these days. It was kind of like, okay, let's open the trap door, everybody go hide in the lead room. So, I mean, it it eradicated the cancer, but it caused me a lot of problems later on in life as far, because it damaged damaged bone tissue and my lungs and those sorts of things, you know. So, as I was growing, I, I had problems that were kind of after effects of that so uh we we spent up up until i was 12 years old in montana and then my parents decided out of the blue that they wanted to start a cattle ranch and they had a friend up in fort st john and they literally sold everything quit their jobs and left and moved to canada (laughs) and i mean it was looking back on it it was a pretty brave and gutsy thing to do you know I, I can't believe my mom agreed to it but they they literally packed all their shit on the uh, you know on a, on a, these trailers and drove across the border I can remember driving along and the the uh, lawnmower we had fell off of the trailer on the interstate and went bouncing down the freeway <laughs> you know we had dogs and fuck we had all we had all kinds of stuff so um we we headed up north and uh my old man got involved in cattle ranching and then uh, right about the time he was starting to get kind of established, he got into an industrial accident. He got his arm crushed by a cat and got his, got his arm severed and it was reattached in Vancouver. That was in like 81. So you can imagine the technology then wasn't super great and they it was successful. He, they saved his arm. Um but with, with a little bit of, I mean, probably 80% of what it was. So that kind of, that, you know, and and, and with the economy kind of crushed his dreams of being a cattleman. So then he got involved in the oil field and with his background in sheep hunting and, and being an avid outdoorsman in Montana. Um, you know, we'd always been incredibly active hunting, you know, not just sheep and, uh, he made some friends with some local hunters around here, and started looking into sheep hunting. And um, then the rest is kind of history as far as the hunting goes. And the hunting's great in British Columbia, and you know he he taught me a lot about taught me a lot about sheep hunting, a lot about. Not sure if I lost you there. Yeah, kind of. I think yeah,
0: you're, you're back now. There you.
2: Okay. Where did I lose you at?
0: You mentioned you were getting sick about one and a half years old.
2: Oh, I lost you guys that early. No, oh, I'm
0: kidding. I'm kidding.
2: <laughs> you, you're killing me.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got most of it just the last five seconds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so
2: good. yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, um, my old man made friends with a lot of the local people, you know, a lot of people that were involved in sheep hunting um also you know a lot of them were horseback oriented you know so he started hunting in the mountains with horses we we had horses left over from our cattle operations so um we started making treks into the mountains hunting caribou at first and then he went and killed a ram and then I started hunting sheep and then he wanted to hunt everything and sheep and I started hunting sheep and then everything after sheep, and we kind of had a meeting of the minds about what we were going to be hunting first. And I, I'm like, you go ahead and shoot. You you can haul meat out of the mountains all day long. I'll be back there sheep hunting. And finally, <laughs> I was like, hey, that's probably a good idea. <laughs> so we ended up, you know, hunting for sheep first, and then, and then uh moving into the other things. But you know, we 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 did it as residents. You know, we did it. Um, by going out and learning the trails and learning where the sheep were and learning the habitat, you know, we didn't, a lot of people were at that time were pretty closed mouth about it and weren't very, very gung ho to share their information. You know, there was a lot of contention between residents and guides in BC. I'm sure you guys know very well what that's like. Uh, They were having huge allocation things, you know, and my dad made friends with Rich Peterson early on and Rich was, A big proponent of resident hunting thankfully and uh, you know Rich had been sheep hunting all over the mountains and you know traveled all over the country so you know he kind of took my dad in and showed him where he was going what he was doing and and then uh, we got after it pretty hard and heavy pretty hot and heavy
0: I don't think there'd be a better mentor than rich back then
1: so, Shane. Um,
2: so, I think somebody go. <laughs> go ahead, Kyle.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So, you, I think a few years ago, you did a, a trek with your dad, like a thirty-day trek, and you retraced um, the, the steps of um, the Chadwick. Chadwick. Stuff. So, um, can you talk a little bit about that? I think your dad was it was pretty elderly at the time, too, right? It was a pretty you know, it was just challenging doing the trip with him and then, you know, doing such a big trip like that. Can you talk a little bit about that trip for us?
2: Sure, you bet. Well, my dad's always been a very avid outdoorsman. He's been very active in sports and, you know, he's he's always been a hard worker. I mean, he's a champion of a human being as far as I'm concerned. Just an all around amazing, amazing man, you know, good fam- family man, good father, good friend. And uh, he, um, You know, at 71 years old, his heart's all in, but his body is not so much anymore. And I'm always trying to tell him, you know, you got to exercise, you got to keep in shape, you got to, you got to stay fit. And he's always like, I am fit, you know, and then he's having a hard time for the first few weeks. So when we first started off, you know, he was really super excited to go. And, you know, I'd pre-planned this out, you know, from a expedition kind of a view as as well as um, I wanted to film it and and create a monument to my father, you know, to to his lifetime and you know his experiences and 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 do something that and, and can chronicle something that he really loved to do. So you know, I had a certain amount of food. I we, I made a lot of pemmican. We did. We had a lot of things that were really compact, high calorie, lightweight, that kind of thing, to make it through because we we weren't having. You know, there was no food coming in. There was no, we weren't meeting anybody. And we didn't know how long we were going to go for. So, um, we started off and, uh, the first couple of days he was wiped. Like he was completely flat on his back, snoring, like out to the world, you know? (laughs) You get up in the morning and, you know, it was almost like, you know, the old proverbial door that when you open it, it creaks. (laughs) And, uh, and it, and after about the first week, he started to limber up, and then and then due to the caloric deficit that he was running, he started to drop a lot of weight. And by week two, he was he was really starting to loosen up. You know, he'd probably dropped at that point twenty pounds. So I mean, you can imagine, you know, having a twenty pound barbell in your backpack and somebody walking along going, "Hey, you don't need this anymore," you know. So feeling lighter on his feet, he was sleeping better, you know, all that sort of thing. And then uh um so he was really starting to enjoy himself then, you know. So we we started out, we went in. We didn't we didn't go in at Hudson Hope where Chadwick started off. They went up um and traveled up all the way up the Halfway River and all the way up in we kind of jumped on the trail right where uh at Buckingham Horse. and went in there. So we, you know, back in, I had about 170, I think it is. And we rode all the way back in, you know, and then uh, rode over the top of the pass down into uh, where the Bessa came, was, came out close, just below Redfern, crossed there, dropped into Petrie Creek and then dropped over into Keeley Creek and then hunted several of the drainages all the way down through there, went rode out on top of the caribou range you know rich peterson is, had always talked to my dad about that it was a big long plateau that comes off of the mountains you know and the sheep all over on it and uh and we just spent our time hunting you know some of the some of the spots that we had heard about that he'd never been to and i kind of wanted to take him to all those and they happened to be all along where chadwick was traveling when he was back in there i mean nobody knows for sure exactly where he was but You know, judging by his journal entries and stuff, you can get a fairly good idea of where he was, you know. So we hunted all through that country and we just basically uh kind of you know, we we went where we want, we did what we wanted and uh we didn't have any kind of schedule or anywhere we needed to go or anything we needed to do. We just, you know, traveled along and hunted and you know, spent a lot of time collecting berries and mushrooms and you know caught fish and just kind of you know lived off the land as much as we could to spread our supplies as far as we could and you know kind of extend our trip to the as as long as we 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 could without having any kind of you know logistical problems we there we didn't have any injuries or anything serious so our probably our biggest um pitfall in that trip was we lost a horse it had chronic um, outside poisoning so it ended up going into liver failure maybe from the stress we don't know but we had a friend uh fly some um medical supplies in and we tried to save the horse and ended up not being able to so we were camped up in uh keely creek then and that a pack of wolves came in and ate half the the horse right by our tent well, One night and then the next night came and ate the rest of it. It must, must have been a hell of a pack of wolves. You never even heard them, never saw them, nothing, you know. It's unreal. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a few parts to that to that story that we never told anybody. Like, I, I'd lost a shoe off my horse and, you know, I had to go out there with an axe and chop a leg off of that dead horse and take the shoe off of it and put it back on my horse, you know, things that are really TV friendly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But but it's the reality of a hunt like that, right? Things happen. Yeah, but I mean, it's but I mean, this.
2: definitely necessary because that yeah. that horse, you know, spent a long time traveling, and you know, without without a shoe on that foot, would have definitely been sore. You know, he would have made it, but it would have been dif- made it difficult for him. So we we ended up hunting down through that country, and then uh, we dropped into the Prophet River and rode up into backside of the Prophet, and uh, my dad ended up killing his ram. You know, I think we were around day 30, somewhere in there. Wow. He killed his ram. That's a hell of a journey. <laughs> yeah. And he passed up some other rams along the way. There was, there was actually a pretty good ram that we saw kind of, you know, up off the South side of the Prophet, And, uh, you know, it was a nice ram, but it was a really shitty spot. You know, nothing like, nothing that we wanted to jump at you know and then there was another one that was kind of just a legal maybe 155 158 inch ram and he's got plenty of those so i just told him no that's not happening you know <laughs> all the way back in there make it count yeah so uh we ended up finding the ram that he got and i mean i don't know if if there's if you if you sat down and picked the perfect spot on planet earth to kill a sheep if you if you could have found a spot like the place that he anchored that ram i mean it was i mean epic isn't even a a strong enough word to describe but it was on the end of a like a knife ridge with a fall to your death on one side and then drop off on the other Okay. a flat spot where it was bedded and i mean nothing on the other side of it like we're talking free fall in 320 degrees 340 degrees around it you know and and the and the view off there was just incredible. you know it was t-shirt weather it was there was just a s- slightest breeze. it was dead calm it was i mean, if there's a such thing as the sheep gods, they were definitely smiling on him that day you know and and uh, it was it was a it was actually it was an incredible uh, i mean one of those once in a lifetime minutes you know moments that you'll never ever be able to recreate and And there's no amount of language or no amount of visual that will ever do justice to how epic that moment was for him, you know, you know, and and then to see him walk out and just stand there and look off into the distance and, and just, you know, take a moment of, of silence to just take it all in is really, really amazing. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that I had the opportunity to be able to, not only go and do that but also um with the help of some of some very close friends uh cody robbins be able to produce and edit that and make it into something that was incredibly great you know i'm definitely in his debt for for the help for that and and he did it just just because he's a, a great guy you know one of the best guys i know wow where can yeah. we
1: watch that video? If somebody wants to see that, Shane, where can they watch the movie or that?
2: Um, we have it posted in YouTube. It's 39 Days on the Trail of Chadwick. Okay.
1: okay.
0: I'll, I'll put it at the end.
2: Yeah, we're, we're actually working on some ideas for, for some more things coming up here. Um, I just came out of uh, one of those divorces that everybody makes jokes about, you know, the comedians. So we we just kind of come out on the right side of that, and you know, there's a lot of positive things in the future for me and for my little girls who are both avid hunters, uh, Maya and Justice. They're little little killers. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. They're definitely predatory, but they're also you know very personable little girls, and you know they're really into the idea of going out and doing some filming and so we'll we'll see what happens with that
1: what do you have in mind Shane what are you thinking
2: well you know I'd like to chronicle their up and coming you know as they as they're they're starting to get to the point now where they're they're super independent you know they're able to handle higher caliber rifles and you know they're both avid uh horse, horse you know they're into horses and rodeo and that kind of stuff. So you know, they're good riders. So they both are very adamant that they want to start sheep hunting immediately. So how old are they Shane? Um is fifteen and Justice is eleven. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah our, so, they've been out uh this fall already. I've seen them on a bunch of stuff with uh I've seen them in a meat locker yesterday. So Oh yeah, J-
2: Justice this year he said that she was she said I want a moose this year. When I, I'm getting my core this year, so I want a moose. And I'm like, okay, that's a lofty goal. We'll see what we can do. And they both got moose. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we're just in the process of taking care of that right now, doing all the butchering, you know, we made uh jalapeno cheddar smokies last night and smoked them all in the double smoker we have. So Love it. Yeah, they're they're right into all that, so it's it's great. So you're thinking about
1: chronicling a sheep hunt with them? Is that the kind of the next project you kind of have in your mind? That's
2: one of them. Yeah. I want to, I want to have them both there. Like I, I'm pretty confident we can go up and do a double header, both of them, you know, and have them both on the same trip and, you know, just kind of a family thing. We're going to do our best to get the old man involved and he's 75 this year. He's still, still went in the mountains this year hunting when I was gone up in Alaska. So, He's still gung-ho to go, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's have like that
1: you guys doing horseback or like a ride in and then.
2: it'll Yeah, ours will be horseback for sure with the girls. Like, we'll do something where we're going to go back and, you know, we'll have enough time to look around and, you know, there's some, there's some good places that are good hunts for them, you know, not too difficult. Nice. I think maybe the most difficult part of any of it would be the river crossings, you know, they're, they're always uh well, they can be a pain in the butt. I mean, the last the last leg of our hunt coming out, we got down to the Prophet River. It started it started raining like about I think day thirty one or something. And I mean it, I've never seen it rain that hard in the mountains for that long. Like it rained just like a deluge, you know. And we, I've been hunting up on this hillside for, well, since nineteen ninety one, back in there. And that whole hill, the whole front of the hillside slid from the rain. And then the, back, the backside, of where, backside of where my dad shot, his ram slid the next day. And I mean, th- these are places that, that, you know, there's no slides there. And then we got down to the Prophet River. It started We started getting into snow and hail and sleet. And it was below zero, but it was wet. Oh, gross. And, and I mean, we were talking about, you know, 12 hours a day riding through brush, going down, you know. And... Trying to stay warm and dry was almost impossible, and the horses were already, you know, pretty beat up from the trip, and uh, they had lost a lot of their conditioning, you know. And we got we got down to the river, and uh, it was still sleeting, and we looked at the river, and the river was like at the conditions our horses were in, it was just we weren't gonna chance crossing it, you know. Just wasn't smart. So we set up camp that night. We got up the next morning and, and the back channel where we had camped, we were up on a flat little bench and the back channel was six feet deep in water the next morning. So I don't know how many feet it came up. It must have come up, the river must have come up maybe a solid three feet overnight. You know, just across the main main thing of it. And it sounded like a jet engine coming down there. And We were whoa, you know, so we had good grass for the horses, and uh, we, you know, we just kind of hung out. We actually built a big, huge fire and just kept rotating the horses by warming them up, you know. Because um, looking looking back on it, after we got back out, the, the caloric load that a horse needs to to keep just to maintain its body weight at that temperature is incredible, you know. And and they just weren't getting it on the food that we had. So uh, that's when we called our buddy Joanne to come and help us cross you know so we could cross them empty just just for their sake and and then we got out to the minnaker river which is normally you can cross that thing in a four-wheeler and not get your feet wet you know it was bank to bank you know so we camped there that night and that actually that night was really interesting because you know we were down to minimal food by then almost nothing other than you know we had sheep meat but my dad um suffered leg cramps that night that were just incredible like he it actually brought him t- brought him to tears they were so bad and so he managed to get through those and then the next morning that that river dropped three feet overnight like literally three feet it was really cold you know it literally just dropped right down from where we were camping. Like stuck a stick in the in the bank and uh we got up in the morning and we damn near still had to swim across it. like. All the trails that we normally ride down, like one trail you, you see in the show, is just all water. You know, down through this cut line, it's, it's three feet of water. It was just, it was, it was unreal. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so we we got out to we got out to the end of there. We had a friend come and meet us in on the way out with, you know, a bunch of oats and stuff for the horses. So we stopped and gave them a power snack. But they were they were wiped out when we got back. You know, we took a lot of TLC to get back to. healthy again but i mean they were rock hard you know (laughs) they look like they look like they were greek warrior horses you know when they come out of there but definitely i mean it was a tough trip on everyone I my dad lost 38 pounds on that hunt wow and i I lost 28 i don't i don't know if i even have that much to lose but
1: how long was the trip how long were you guys away for shane
2: we were we were 39 days in from start to finish yeah amazing
1: uh, just out of curiosity, do you remember how long the Chadwick expedition was? How long that how long uh the-
2: i don't I can't remember offhand i mean i I read a lot of the old diary stuff that they had, but um, I know they suffered a lot of hardships on that trip too and I mean they did a they back back then hunting was kind of a free for all They were just like shooting things left, right, and center, you know yeah, for meat and whatever um, How many
1: horses did you guys take on that trip with you?
2: we took six horses so um, when we lost that horse at two weeks we had to haul all the stuff that that horse was wearing on another horse so you know the extra panniers, the pack saddle the blankets you know that stuff had to go with us everywhere we went so it was definitely a challenge kind of organizing that but we had you know really spent a lot or I had spent a lot of time planning how we were going to bring stuff and how much we we're going to bring and to try and keep it compact. So that definitely helped us, you know, throughout the whole trip, a person can really get out of hand with horses, bringing a lot of extra stuff. And, you know, I really went more of the minimalist route. So, you know, all our cook sets, all of our, everything was just small and compact and really light. Even our stove, you know, I built a stove out of an ammo can before we left. And then uh, you know the stovepipe was just some pieces of aluminum conduit, you know, maybe two and a half inches. So it was all it would all fit in a pannier, and it was all compact, you know. And then there was things that we had that fit inside the stove, and you know we knew we were going to do a lot of alpine stuff, so we had uh, we had packed briquettes and coal with us. So we were up on on top of some mountain ranges that had nothing for for fuel for the stove you know so we were we would burn the burkettes and the coal in it at night and we, you know you didn't have to gather firewood or anything like that super light very compact you know high energy stuff wow so yeah it was it was definitely uh definitely an interesting experience it was a lot of fun and i mean i was confident i was 100 confident we could i mean i could go out and live out there on my own and I mean, I, I'm one of those guys that can turn around and walk away into the wilderness and never come back and be just fine, you know? And <laughs> we all live. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, we got out of there and, uh, and it was, it was a great trip. It was, it was, we, we were coming down the highway. I, I forget what time we got into, into the ranch, maybe 11 at night. And my old man's transmission was literally on its last hundred feet when we pulled into the driveway. Like it, he didn't, he, he had a hard time even getting it in to get it repaired. Wow. We had all the, light was dinging. And,
1: <laughs> and you had a horse trailer, I'm sure, I guess. Eh?
2: Yeah. Yeah. We had the horse trailer on.
1: Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. Cool. So what's, what was the biggest challenge on that trip? Was it the weather? Like obviously your dad had trying to, manage you know being comfortable for him right because he's he's not as active as he was but what would you say the biggest challenge was with that whole? The, the
2: biggest challenge without a doubt was was the care and maintenance of the horses you know because they're you know they they get nicked up and dinged up during trips like that and you know um that was definitely 100 the the biggest part of that trip was You know maintaining our horses for that period of time you know you know there was a couple of days where we had to stop and just give them a break and you know we had to you know camp where there was good feed most of the time and you know in hindsight it would have been more beneficial to stash some you know high protein feed somewhere in there halfway along where we were going to go but that kind of would have taken away from the whole premise of the trip you know you know we were wanting to go out there and and do it expedition style and do it you know we we tra- I think we traveled over 350 miles through the mountains on that trip wow amazing like like linear miles that's not counting up and down and looking all over and that kind of thing but but it, yeah we we covered a, a lot of territory there so 10 miles a day roughly
1: is what you were doing then
2: so. yeah we i mean we didn't really we didn't really do a lot of long range traveling as far, you know, there's a few days where we traveled a long ways, but most of the time we were, we were, we were in good sheep country. So we were hunting everywhere. we went. Right. So we were, you know, I mean, the golden rule to sheep hunting is, you know, sit down on your ass and glass, (laughs) keep looking, you know, look more. So we spent a lot of time glassing, a lot of time looking and, and I mean, really the the whole obviously we're both avid hunters so the the idea was to you know for me the the main idea was to get my dad a really nice ram and to chronicle it you know like i said and create a memorial for him and, and the other the other idea of it was just to go out and and connect uh you know on a on a primitive level as father and son and go out and and you know being in a place where we had to rely on each other for survival and you know we had to rely on each other's knowledge of the outdoors and the wilderness and you know the country that we're in and you know all of the experience that we both had over the years you know to navigate through a lot of what a lot of what was pretty harsh country you know and so, a lot of the places we went, you know, there's no trails. We we made our own. So, Amazing. So you yeah. carry a
1: saw with you too and stuff, or how, what did you do for that?
2: Uh we didn't carry a saw with us on this trip. We just didn't have the room for it on this one. You know, we had a small axe with us, but I mean, the majority of the places that if if you need an axe to get through somewhere with a horse, you're probably in not great, not that great of a place. You know, I mean, there's here and there, you know, but but if you're having to hack you, I've done that before too. I mean, if you have to hack your way through somewhere, it's, you'll hate life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. wow. it, it reminds me of uh big horn hunting with Rod Shram, And we, we dropped down off of a really steep ridge and we knew our horses would go down, probably not up, but we figured we could side hill along and get back to where we needed to get. And, uh, we got down into these steep side hills where these sheep had been walking and in the timber and these big cuts in these hillsides with these little tiny goat trails that went across them and into the thickest shittiest dog hair you've ever seen like I had an axe with me I think I chopped down 5,000 trees over the course of the next day trying to get out of there we had to walk our horses up through a big rock chute waterfall to get up out of this spot I mean it was it was one of those things. I think we stopped at about eleven o'clock at night, and it was one of those nights where it was really hot and really humid, you know. And we were we were at, actually had our shirts off; it was so hot. And we both, I don't know, he must have cut down an equal amount of trees. Like we had to literally cut trees down to get our horses through where we were going. It was so thick, you know, like chop a path all the way out of there. <laughs> so yeah, it was
1: a lot of fun. Well, cool. so so we're on the topic of sheep hunting now. Um, somebody's starting out somebody's interested in sheep hunting what advice are you going to give a new sheep hunter and not so much the horseback like think of somebody that just wants to take off steve's going to do his first sheep hunt this this coming fall that one next year so what's what's your sort of top three pearls of wisdom for a guy like steve that's starting out
2: well um some a lot of people don't have the advantage of talking to people that know where the sheep are a lot of people are tight-lipped about it um, we kind of had the, you know, I was kind of raised that way too. You keep your secret spot secret, you know, you're competitive with hunting. But as I got older, you know, I started to, you, you know, you you learn about humility and you learn about friendship and um, I started to notice people like Rich Peterson who would, would go out of his way to help people and, you know, tell them where a good spot was to go or just get them out and get them active, you know, and, and that appealed a lot more to me than hoarding it for myself or keeping my secrets, you know? So I kind of embraced that, that persona of, you know, it's not, not that I'm writing a book for everybody, like, go here, go here, go here, but I would definitely would help people get out and get in the right spots and, you know, go have a good chance of, of finding sheep. So, I mean, you know talk to your peers talk to your friends you know find out people that have you know same kind of interest you do and and pick them for knowledge and see what they have to say some people are really helpful and happy to help some people aren't and uh, that's going to be your greatest your greatest kickoff is is learning about the habitat learning about where they live and how to get there and that kind of thing you know and that usually comes from people that have you. So I think that would probably be one of the one of the biggest advantages is is you know getting yourself involved with people that are in you know enjoying the same thing that you like to do um, The other one would be I think it's imperative if you're gonna go out and you want to be successful to become an expert at what you're doing you know start learning about you know habitat learning about behavior learning about you know um breeding learning about you know all their behavior mechanisms what makes them do this what makes them do that Uh, you know where do they like to what kind of structures do they like to habituate you know you know what kind of habitat are you looking for and all those things will really narrow down where they are and where they aren't you know you know they travel in between places and you'll find them in some of the most bizarre places but oftentimes You can look up on a mountain and you can pick out spots where, you know, sheep are going to bed or, you know, they're going to feed, you know, and uh, that would be one of them. And the other one I've, I, I consistently see people, you know, the, the romance of sheep hunting is you get on a backpack, you go out and you just hike and hike and hike and you climb up the mountains and the view is amazing. And I mean, I've gone for a week on horseback through mountains that would kill you on foot and never even seen a sheep so your odds of picking a mountain and climbing up it and seeing a ram are very small so I always tell people hike smart you know get get somewhere where you can look and and glass and find the sheep before you go up after him. I mean that's not I mean you're it, it's not always going to be a failure when you hike up I mean there's a lot of places that are great sheep habitat you're gonna have a high percentage chance of seeing sheep but you can save yourself a lot of walking you know if you determine whether that ram's worth going up you know at the base of the mountain rather than hiking up to the top and finding out he's not legal or he's not what you want you know
0: Oh, that, that's good that's good stuff so like what kind of what kind of training would you recommend somebody get into i i, I hear people say hike 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 put weights in your pack or don't bother you're going to be blasting a lot so what would you recommend
2: it's i mean it's 90 percent aerobic right so you're i mean i'm a i only have like 42 percent of my lung capacity so for me hiking is i mean i i always hated it i mean i love being there doing it but it's a struggle for me and you know, I'm never gonna be one of those guys that charges up a mountain. Like I, I would love to know what that feels like, but I can do it a hundred days in a row. Right, <laughs> eat the same food, wear the same clothes, and when other people would go batshit crazy. So, um, training wise, you know, I, having strong bones, strong muscles, and having a good aerobic base are fundamental to anything you do. Right. That the only catch is if you hit the gym heavy and you put on a lot of muscle. That muscle has to be fed, you have to feed it oxygen to keep it going, so that means your aerobic base has to be higher. you have to be in really good aerobic shape, so I think somewhere there's a trade off between being muscular and and being aerobically fit yeah i am i mean two years ago, I went up to Alaska, and I was maybe fifteen pounds heavier than I am now muscle, and I noticed the difference for me, even it was I was strong, but um you know, I've been going to the gym for almost 10 years straight. So for me, it was, you know, I noticed a a heavier drain aerobically than I would have um, normally. So, I mean, it, and it it also has a lot to do with the individual too, because everybody's, um, your oxygen uptake rates different. So, you know, some people might be natural hikers and you know, I hate those guys. (laughs) 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 And there's other people that just, they're slow and steady, right? And some people just struggle. So, you know, if you're, um, I think, I think a good, you know, kind of mid range weight, you know, kind of training system I think a, a really good aerobic base and you, and definitely, you know, putting weight in your pack is is weight training, you know, you're stressing your legs, you're putting extra weight and you're you're conditioning your body to be used to that extra extra weight. It's going to build strength, it's going to build your aerobic base. You know, it's going to get your heart rate up better. All going to benefit you. Um I've seen a lot of people that I I had a friend one night that was drilling holes and he cut his toothbrush in half. Yeah, And then he was drilling holes in the handle and I go, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm I'm just, I want to make sure everything I'm carrying is lightweight when I go out sheep hunting and I'm going, okay, that's really cool. But I go, Dick, why don't you just lose 10 pounds and take the whole toothbrush? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Right. Man. I never thought of that. So, I mean, being fit is, is your best. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to make your trip a lot more enjoyable. So, I mean, if if a guy is carrying an extra ten pounds, go on a diet three months before you leave. You know, cut your cut your weight back. You know, get on a. There's tons of apps that track your eating. You can in, enter your your food in, and you can put yourself in a calorie deficit and lose two or three pounds a month without any kind of, you know, any kind of suffering. And I mean, you just dropped ten pounds off of your load right there if you're walking. So, I think I think that would be. That would be where I would, where I would attack it from. Definitely where I have in the past.
0: Most important piece of gear that you can carry. You hear people say boots, packs, <laughs> knives. What, what's the one thing that you feel is most important to, to get right?
2: Rain gear. If you, if you don't have good rain gear, that's a life or death item as far as I'm concerned. And uh, the rain gear that I took on that trip, I spent a lot of money on it and I'm not going to slag the company that, 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 you know, but, but it leaked and it, and it was a very, you know, it it created a big dilemma for me in the last 10 days when we were in that sub-zero water sleep kind of stuff and I was getting cold and, you know, exposure when you're, when you're out in the, in the mountains, exposure is your number one concern, you know, exposure is going to kill you before anything else will so you need to be able to be warm and be dry you know and so you need to have a system of gear whether it's old school which is perfectly capable of keeping you alive or new school but you have to have a system in place that can you can strip it down when you're hot and you can build it up when you're cold so that you can if you have to sleep out where you don't have shelter that you're going to survive you know I've a couple of years ago, a uh, client and I slept out on a glacier and you want to talk about, I have slept out and at night, a lot of times around fires and those are, I've never, ever once woke up in the morning and thought to myself, I oh, I'll from remember. I'll, the, you know, that was the best time of my life. You know, it was just amazing. <laughs> you know, embers are popping on you. You're getting burnt. The fire's going out. You're freezing on one side. The ground's sucking the heat out of you. You know, or you're sleeping on a saddle and it's far from uncomfortable, but, If you have the right kind of gear, like I have some Sitka gear that it used to be waterproof, and I put rain gear over it, but it's heavy down jacket and bibs. And I mean, it's like sleeping in a sleeping bag. You could could survive with that under a spruce tree, no problem. And I've done it a few times, you know. But that night sleeping on that glacier was definitely a humbling experience because, you know, we were hiking until the late hours of the morning and got down to a place where we couldn't go anymore. It was too dark and too dangerous. So we curled up by a big rock on a ice little ice plateau and slept on that thing. And I told the guys with me, I go, put on every piece of clothing you have because this is going to be a long night a long four hours. And, um, my client Wes goes, Oh, he goes, I'm just, I'm too tired. I'm going to be fine. I'm, I got all this stuff on. And he woke up about an hour later, and he's like, "My God, am I cold?" <laughs> he get up and shivering, lips were blue, and you know, and we we had just like one little space blanket thing, but I mean, it's it's amazing how fast things go from really good to really not so good, you know. And and if you have if you have good gear, if you have a good layer system, it'll I mean I mean it can save your life literally, as far as I'm concerned, you know. Me, exposure. The exposure is the number one concern you should have in your hunting.
1: So you weren't going to slag the guys with the crappy <laughs> gear, but what are you running now for rain gear? What do you got? That's. Uh, do you have a, a set of gear that works really well right now?
2: Well, I've gone through a lot of them, and I hadn't found any that were waterproof yet. A lot of them that say they were, and I've had people that have had good luck with some of them, but. Um, I bought some Gore-Tex Gabela's guide wear Okay. It's, it's not it's black and i mean a lot of the hunting you do when you're up in the alpine you're in grays and blacks and stuff anyway so you know primary colors or or not primary colors but kind of black and white and grays tend to blend in better than anything you know yeah and uh this is like black black rain gear with i think it's got some red lettering on the side of it or whatever it's not something you go hey you know it's a the coolest camo pattern ever but i mean it's dry 100 yeah. percent I had the pants for the last two years and I had the coat this year and we were up in that, you know, Healy country and it rained on us for 20 some days and never got wet once through it. So I would definitely, I would definitely advocate for them for sure. Is it
1: heavy as hell or can you hike in it? Is it super
2: light? It's just a Gore, it's just a Gore-Tex layer, but it's, you know, but it's a high, I think it's two or three layers. I've heard that Arctex is supposed to be... Arc'teryx is pretty good to you like it's I think they're three-layer Gore-Tex too super expensive, but yeah. I don't know how how much they would love having people endorse their product with gut piles in the background <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, no doubt for sure um, I'd be happy to <laughs> yeah. So uh, Shane um, You mentioned it before about you know the mountains and like so you go by the name Ram Hunter Pallister. You, you, you talk, told us about fighting with your dad about what you're going to hunt first and you're hunting sheep. So, so what, it is about, what is it about sheep? And you said, like, you know, study them, learn them. Um, you know, you don't see guys do that with whitetails much. I'm not saying there are people that do that. But sheep hunters are a unique, very unique breed, right? Um, so what is it? Is it about the animal? Is it about the country? What, what is it that makes sheep hunting so special? And, and why are you so bloody addicted to it?
2: well I think for me I mean at an early age they were they were magical to me you know they were they were like bigger than life I was a tiny little kid my dad was you know this big bearded guy he was my hero you know he was a you know wore a hat with a foxtail off the back and elk ivories around it and you know he was a killing machine and just like unstoppable you know like just a force of nature when it came to hunting and I you know I wanted to be just like him I thought he was amazing you know and he just loved sheep for some I don't know why he he really dove into sheep so much but I I think it was just an opportunity that he had and uh and he kind of jumped at it and you know being so hardy and being so outdoorsy it was just a great fit for him you know. So I think for me, it was just something that was just, you know, it was like a unicorn when I was a little kid. It was just this mystical, unbelievable thing that, you know, you just didn't see him all over the place. Like you did deer and elk and moose, you know, so, um, I would, I would go out with him and I would love it when we ran into that red ram and then, you know, and then when we got into teenager kind of life, you know, we, we were always hunting a lot, but we had never really gotten into the super long expeditions into the mountains. And my dad started doing them. He did one with uh, the Thyssen brothers back in the day, went up into that prophet country and uh, came out with the giant moose and a sheep and all these stories. And, you know, so, and then his, some of his brothers came up hunting for Montana with him and went out, and, you know, went out elk hunting and that kind of thing. And, you know obviously we we got involved in it too and we were hauling elk and moose out of there like crazy and i just i think the first ram that i killed was just such an interesting amazing experience it was just it just hooked me for life you know we we hiked up the backside, this big long like we rode our horses up this big hogs back and got up onto this you know where we couldn't ride the horses anymore tied them up and then uh hiked up onto this ridgeline where we, we'd seen a ram from way back down the Prophet River. And uh you could tell he was a good Ram from quite a ways away. He was laying on the skyline, you know, when we'd spotted him. And this was two days later. So we we climb up there and we really I, you know, at looking back, we didn't really have any kind of experience with it, you know. And uh we were walking up the ridgeline and we were on a beside a big rock face, you know and it had a sheep trail coming down it, and there was a big rock slide below it. And uh, I'm literally in the front, my dad and his brother, and I hear some rocks rattling, and I look up, and here comes five sheep running down this rock face above us. like We're talking 20 feet away. I grabbed my gun, racked around into it, and as the sheep ran by me, it was literally seven feet away, I I put I swung my gun like this and went boom and just it, it hit it it hit it so hard it like it it the the hair where the bullet went in went like this from the muzzle blast and knocked the ram right off of his feet and I threw the gun to my dad and ran down the rock slide cuz it started you know rolling and grabbed a hold of the horn and the leg and held it there so it wouldn't roll down the rock slide while it was dying you know how old were you um i would have been 19 then oh, I, I had to hold this round that was fully 100 percent alive well i mean it had a, a 7mm slug right through its shoulder blade but i mean literally from seven feet just blew it right off its feet so i held this thing until it 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 died and then uh we were all all happy you know and taking a few pictures and whatever and all of a sudden we hear hey you guys shot my ram and we're like what we look up and on the top of the cliff there's a native fella looking down over the top of the cliff as head popped over the top you know and he comes skittering down the rock where the sheep came and come down and his name was jimmy cardinal he was guiding up in there and he's like yeah we we spotted that ram from you know down the other side and we jumped him and my I didn't let my client shoot and he goes, well, I guess we'll go hunt somewhere else. (laughs) So that was my, my very first ram, you know, and a beautiful double broom, super nice ram, you know, it would have been, it would have been over 40 inches, not broomed off. But, uh, so that was kind of the kickoff to it, you know, and then backpacking it down and, and then, uh, my dad really, you know, started hunting heavier too. And then, I just that's where I kind of kind of told him look at I'm going to be sheep hunting more than I'm going to be hunting anything else first you know so kind of eclipsed into that and then uh, you know we had we had a lot of we had a lot of great hunts I mean between all of us between he and my dad and my brother we have quite a few sheep I think maybe I don't know probably 45 or so something like that wow but quite a bunch yeah but uh, you know that was kind of the kickoff, and and I mean to me the the draw to it is I you know I know a lot of people that hunt sheep now, and I mean to a T, almost every one of them are you know people that are high quality, you know high functioning people. They're people you can sit down and have good conversations with. They're usually you know avid at whatever they're doing. They're, they're usually fit, you know, they're, um, they're, they're out, they're looking for, they're, they're always looking for ways to test themselves, you know, which puts them in a category of people that, you know, like the adventurers, people that go out and, you know, you you don't know for sure if that trip is going to be good or if you're going to get hurt or if you're going to have enough food or, you know if the river is going to go up, but well, you know you're going to go out and you're confident in your ability to go out and and uh, persevere through that. You know, so I think the the camaraderie and the and the self challenge is probably, in my opinion, what draws most. You know, most of the men that I've and women that I've met that that have gotten involved in sheep hunting, they just seem to really thrive on that. You know that that feeling of testing themselves you know if cool. that makes sense
1: yeah it makes a lot of sense for sure so so you've you obviously talked a ton about stone sheep and thin horns uh you've hunted all over the world here in, in alaska dull sheep hunting guiding um, obviously do a ton in mexico um i presume you've killed something other than a, a, a stone have you hunted bighorn uh yeah
2: well. yeah um i killed a bighorn down in southeastern bc um i killed a california down the lower free uh, doll sheep in the territories and
1: no bighorn in mexico yet still working? not yet
2: no no okay. not yet i mean uh, i mean i did there. 19,
1: huh? 19
2: no
1: okay yeah so yeah. you're almost due right
2: yeah had had a good good rundown though. They've all been book sheep, so it's been been a pretty good
1: right. so um, you've you've seen them all, you've s- seen the four species across the landscape. Is there anything that stands out? Like what is there one you prefer um over the other? You've got to you you've guided a ton a ton as well. Yeah. So is there something that stands out for
2: you? Um I would say stone sheep are probably they did they just seem to be the most majestic you know they're spread out over such a vast range and so much different terrain and they're they're incredibly hard to spot most of the time you know they can blend in amazingly you know they're they live down in the timber they live in the alpine they're definitely and because of the the remoteness they're definitely super challenging um doll sheep as far as Locating, they're probably the easiest sheep to hunt that there is by a landslide. You know, like you can ride into a valley and go, "There's some, there's some, there's some, there's some." You know, you can't do that with stone sheep. Like you're sneaking into a valley, worried about exposing yourself because you you have to glass everything. You know, with the doll sheep, it's you know where they're at already. You know, you can see them from miles away. Um, I think for me, like in the next few years, I'm definitely going to focus on on getting a big big bighorn you know you know i've I've spent a lot of time focusing on stone sheep but i think you know i'm really going to spend some serious time looking for a big big bighorn southern part of bc okay i think they're they're probably the most elusive as far as big sheep go you know Mm -hmm. they live live in you know a lot of places you find them they're you know they're living in timber like the elk are you know so yeah Yeah. sure so
1: Shane, there's three things I know about you. You're a kick-ass, hardcore, diehard hard hunter, uh, ram hunter, pallister So you're you living up to your name. Uh, Family is incredibly important. Uh, but the one thing that I, you know, I think a lot of people know about you is you. You have a, a story uh, of hardship and adversity. Um, what you've overcome with your cancer, um, and you're very um, inspirational to people. And you you do a lot of motivational work. Whether you uh mean to or not you're a motivation for a lot of people and i know you do a lot of work with wounded warriors so talk let's talk about that story what you're doing there and and you talked a little bit about your personal hardships in life with cancer and overcoming that and just the story of success as a hunter right like you know you're working with half your lung capacity and your back muscles gone meanwhile you're out there crushing it so uh let's let's talk about that aspect of your life for a bit if you don't mind
2: Sure, well, just just a little bit of background. like the the cancer surgery that I had when I was an infant when I was younger, um, that was successful. They eradicated the cancer, but what, like I said, the the radiation therapy that they did at the time was incredibly damaging to the surrounding tissue. And unfortunately, the tumor was right against my spine. Like right, right beside my spinal cord. So when they radiated it, they radiated me from my, you know, all of my thoracic vertebrae were radiated, and all the ribs around them. So when I was about 16 years old, um, the bone tissue in the the radiated bone tissue grew at a different rate than the rest of my bone tissue did. So it started to cause, you know deformity in my spine so my spine i I developed scoliosis but i also developed kyphosis so because of both of those if you look at a 3d view of my spine my spine spins like a corkscrew so it 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 got to the point where i when i was growing so much after i hit puberty that it had become unstable and um, i went down to an orthopedic surgeon Um, Dr. Treadwell in Vancouver Uh, he was recommended as probably the leading doctor in North America from my grandfather uh, the geneticist I mentioned and um, he told me that if I didn't have some form of corrective surgery that I only had a life expectancy of maybe another year before my spine was going to degrade to the point where it would cause paralysis or death so um, we went to see a surgeon in Spokane, too. Who was also a friend of my, my grandfather's, uh, another really prolific surgeon. And between all of them, they came up with a plan to um, stabilize my spine and then put a bone strut in it. So they admitted me into the children's hospital and... Uh, The first surgery I had, they severed all the spinal muscles off my vertebrae, cut them all loose, and then they put a halo device on my head and screwed it into my skull, and then they ran a cable up on an inclined bed up to a set of weights, they had like 30 pounds on the cable pulling me one way and the inclination of the bed, gravity pulling me the other way and i laid on that bed for a long time uh, months and months waiting for my spine to straighten out and, and to the point of where they could put this bone strut in um so when they got to the point you know every so often they would take me out of the traction put me in a wheelchair they had the same sort of setup in it that pulled up on my head you know because my spine wasn't stable anymore because of the muscles being loosened off of it my neck and that sort of thing so they would wheel me down and i would get x-rays taken every so often and they would measure the progress of the of, of how they would straighten it so um i think it was maybe eight months or so before it got to the point of where they felt they were confident that they wanted to operate on it so the next surgery I had, I went in and they um, cut my fibia out of my leg. And they split, split the lining down the bone, peeled the bone out, and sewed it back up, and the bone regrew back down inside my leg. And they took that piece of bone out, and they took, I can't remember if it was three or four of my, Discs out of my thoracic vertebrae. They removed the discs and they fused my spine. And then they fused the fibia to that area that they were stabilizing. Uh, they removed one of my ribs and took chips off of my hip for that as well. So I had an incision on my hip. I had, you know, the incision down my spine from when they removed the muscles. And then they cut me open from, you know, under my arm all the way to my spine on one side uh deflated one of my lungs and i think it was a nine or ten hour surgery they did and i came out of that feeling like i've been shot out of a shit cannon it was pretty bad <laughs> um they uh had me on like a full-time morphine drip and they had me in a put me in a body cast and uh i was in traction for you know months again in the in the bed until the until the bone solidified and when they got to the point where they were confident that the bone had you know all fused then I think that was a little over a year that I was in the hospital then they put me in a body cast you know with a thing that held my chin up and turned me loose and sent me back home how old were you when this happened Shane like how long ago was that I was 16 when that happened so I missed a year of high school for that wow so I went back onto the farm and with a body cast on and was going out trapping and doing all the shit they told me I wasn't supposed to be doing. And I can still remember breaking sticks over my knee and that, that jerking motion just moving my head a little bit and it creating this inma- incredible pain, you know, little things like that. Sneezing was like, you know, to sneeze was like the worst pain in the world, you know, in the hospital after surgery it was like death, you know. But I was out trapping and hunting and, you know, trying to get my life back in order, riding horses with this cast on. And I'd come back and my doctor would be like, he told me I could never do any kind of physical sports. You know, I could never do any kind of, couldn't ride horses, you know, none of that kind of stuff. He says, don't do any of that. It's too dangerous, you know. And I, would sh- I showed back up for a checkup and he's like, you're doing what? He goes, he just shook his head. He goes, that's phenomenal that you can do all that stuff, you know. And, you know. It was just, it, I know, it just got to be a mindset for me. It was a survival thing, you know. And I was, you know, I was hospitalized with a lot of children that had a lot of really serious illnesses in that in that ward of the children's hospital. There was kids with cystic fibrosis and all kinds of things, you know. And a lot of them were really succumbing to their diseases. And you know, I just would look around and thought, think to myself, I'm not like that. I would never. Lay there and give up, you know. So while they were, you know, struggling to stay alive, just out of pure mindset, you know, I was in at night. I'd be sitting there with a sandbag, doing arm curls, you know, and like doing anything I could, you know, trying to trying to get myself back. You know, they told me I couldn't get out of bed for four weeks. You know, in the middle of the night, I would get out of bed and walk around my room, even two or three steps, just because I just approved that I could do it, you know. And then when recovery time came around, they're like, wow, you know, you're really coming along great. And I would tell them, like, it's been three weeks. I've been walking for three weeks already. (laughs) You know, so, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of, um, it was, there was a lot of um, probably personal development with that. You know, like things that I didn't count on happening to me, you know, there was, you know, when you, when you're in a place where people have to take care of you, you know, when you're, you're having a crap in a bedpan because you can't get to a toilet or, you know, a nurse walks in and goes, Hey, you're going to get an enema now before you go in for surgery. And you don't have any choice. You know, it really makes you go, wow, (laughs) you really appreciate when days are good, you know, and really, really creates a sense of gratitude for what you have. And, and, uh, and really makes you focus on on keeping what you have and not losing it you know so so I think that's kind of where there was kind of the groundwork laid for that that sense of um, of gratitude that I that I'm very very focused on now you know and I'm you know practice daily you know and that and that kind of moved into my adolescent life you know I I really had a I get, I mean, probably young, I had probably a pretty heavy chip on my shoulder. I was really competitive. I was probably fairly arrogant because, you know, I'd fought for my life already. You know, I knew what it was like to lay there and face dying and nobody was going to tell me what to do or how to do it or what I could and couldn't do. You know, I was going to be the master of that, you know, and that took a while for me to kind of grow into, so to speak, you know, to kind of find a way to channel that into a positive productive part of my life you know and in the later years i you know facebook came along and there was this all of a sudden this pipeline to everybody and i kind of got into it a little bit and it was kind of that thing where you could just sound off and say your thing or talk to this guy or do that or whatever and it was really pointless and then i got into the hunting side of things and i'm thinking to myself what happens if if you know I set up a profile where you find like-minded people and start networking and, you know, and it, and it benefits you hunting, but also you start connecting with people that inspire you and, you know, and start building something different than what's going on. So that's kind of how the Ram Hunter thing came along. It was just kind of like a branding kind of a thing. It was a way of, you know, stepping away from what everybody else was doing and being something a little bit different. And about that same time, um, it, it was not, it was not long after being in Mexico that I started doing that. and about that same time, I got involved with the wounded warriors, and that was that was a pivotal point in my life that was an, that was a point where my life diverged from what was normal for me and to a completely different perspective on. Humanity on being being of service to people, you know, and sometimes being a lifeline, quite frankly, to people. So, um, by chance, I just happened to get involved in it. You know, I, I was very enthusiastic about being involved in it, and um, made friends with some of the people that had founded it, and uh, Ron Roboud, who's you know a prince of a man, and uh, started You know devoting whatever time I could to them, you know, whatever they asked of me, you know I've, I've to this day if they asked anything of me, I'd give them whatever they asked time money, whatever they needed, you know, so um, So getting involved in wounded warriors was really kind of an extension of of who I was as a person because growing up i went through a lot of a lot of trouble coming to terms with my injury and my condition and the fact that i looked a little bit different than everybody else that i had these injuries that i had these scars that i had you know that part of my back looks like i got hit by a rocket launcher you know and and i started to realize at a certain point you know somebody would recognize me out of the blue and I'd be like, I just, I don't, I walked by that person five years ago. How would they remember who I am? And I started realizing, what if, what if my image was something memorable to somebody? What if that was a way of that reminded them of who I was? What if I capitalized on that? What if I started using who I was to try and inspire other people? What if I stood up, stood out instead of standing back? What if I stood forward and said, This is what happened to me. This is what I was told I couldn't do. This is what I thought I was capable of, and this is what I want you to try and do. You know, this is how I want you to try and tackle the problems. So it was this really incredible epiphany. You know, it was just a like walking into a glass wall. I stopped and I was like, wait a second. (laughs) I've been looking at this completely wrong. So It went from being, you know, an integral part of my life to, you know, uh, uh, basically a a tool to connect with people that were struggling in various parts of their life. And gave me an opportunity, you know, with, you know, with the greatest sense of humility to be able to to touch people's lives and, and sometimes inspire them or, you know, help them or be there for them or whatever, whatever it was. And, you know, I'm not saying I've, there's people lined up out the door by thousands, but I've had some very interesting interactions with people where they've come up and commented about things I've said or done and how it's impacted them. And it, and it's been incredibly humbling. You know, it's been, it's been amazing to, to be able to be, uh, have that honor of of helping somebody in in a time when they felt like they didn't have any, you know, I, one of, one of my best friends in the world right now is a wounded warrior and he'll tell anybody that listens, he goes, you saved my life. Literally. Mm. You're, you saved my life and you're going to always be my brother no matter what. You know,
1: <laughs> That's fantastic, Shane. Uh, you know, I, I, I've been following you a long time too on social and Facebook and yeah, see it all the time, you know, the inspiration you are for people and, super thankful for that. Um now with the world's messed up, right? It's upside down. COVID's created all this uh challenge and a lot of anxiety for people. Have you seen people struggling more and have you have you, you feel like you're having to do more to support people with this or it's just you've been there doing that all along anyway? So what what what's your take on all this with
2: I th- I think for me um we we're kind of rural up here so we're really somewhat insulated from it. I've traveled a fair bit in the last little while. So I've got to see kind of a cross section of different parts of the country. And it seems like where people sort of gravitate towards an outdoor lifestyle they're they seem a little more insulated from it. And I think for me, I'm seeing two really glaring kind of opposing parties. I see the one side that's all for being told what to do. And then I see the other side that's like me that, I question everything, you know, and, and because of people like me that question everything, things change, things get better. They move around, you know, you know, I'm not happy with being told to stand here in the corner and do this. I want to know what the reason is, and I want to know why, and I want to know how long, and you know, I, I start I'm, I'm always asking questions, right? So, so I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot of people str- that are struggling now, you know, my friend's just closing down his business. It's, it's not directly COVID related, but it's, it's directly related to Canada's stance on how they're handling it economically, you know, and it, and it's created an impact in Northern British Columbia and the oil field big time. You know, there's, I lost a couple businesses up here because of the, the you know, the way they're looking at things. And, I know he's he's dropping his business I have another friend that was just hunting with us that lost hers That you know and I wonder where the what the end game of it all is are we going to be an economically prosperous country or are we going to be an eco green friendly everybody kind of live off the land kind of thing I'd be happy with the second one if everybody was that way but I mean, it would be a huge structure change, right? And I don't see it that being realistic, you know? You know, people will say, you know, I'm against polluting, but they never ever question where does the rubber that comes off of your tires that wear out go by the millions of tons a year, you know? The same person that marches down the street with a sign drives their car all over, where does the rubber off your tires go? It goes right into the environment, microplastics, you know, might be rubber, whatever. So I think it's a, big cross-section of people that the realists and the people that are really not looking at things. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Very good point. Very valid And all, uh, you know, a challenging time and things we need to think about. Right. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it a, it's a crazy world right now. So.
2: I yeah. just think, I, I just think people have a incredibly, uh, most people have an incred- incredibly small view of, you know, humanity. I think you know you you have people that go out and you know because hunting is such an integral part of our family, you know we you know we garden, we hunt, we fish, we we produce you know we don't go out and buy a meat in the store. my my household doesn't. We don't go and buy chicken, we don't go and buy beef. You know when we go out to restaurants, we don't even buy it. very rare. you know all of our all of our food is stuff that we've hunted, stuff that we've grown, stuff that we've canned you know, made our homemade wine, all those kind of things, you know, we, we, we pride on ourselves on being self-sufficient, you know, and, and then I see, you know, that person that's a vegan standing in front of me telling me you shouldn't be hunting, you know, you shouldn't be harming animals. And then I tell them, you know, how is it that you can, you can point your finger at me when all the vegetables that you buy is all the product of agriculture, which is one of the biggest annihilators of life on the planet. You know, every mouse in the field gets crushed, every bird nest gets run over, baby fawns get run over, there's crows following along eating all the food that's being left behind the machinery, and you're telling me that you don't have any impact on that? <laughs> you know, it's just a, it's just an unrealistic view. So, so for me, you know, getting back to the sheep hunting, getting up on a mountain and looking across the expanse of all that and knowing that I got there, that I was self-sufficient, that you know, I tested myself, it's got to be the most satisfying feeling of all of it, you know, and, and getting other people involved in it, and then also being involved in the conservation of it, and, you know, having friends that are involved in it, and surrounding myself with more of the same people that have the same passion and the same love for what I do, you know, it's, it's created a, a really, you know, the more the more I've structured my life around the things that I think are really important, I've really, it's really, really made my life great. It's made it amazing, you know, and it, and it, the majority has to do with the people that I'm surrounded with, you know, you know, I have, I have more friends than I, than I know what to do with now. And, and I'm thankful for every one of them, you know, I've, I've been in contact with some of the people that challenge me to be a better person all the time, you know, every walk of life. And it's just it's just it's just kind of perpetuated the more the more that you um embrace the that idea the the quicker and faster it starts to happen and the more your life starts to change and the and then you start realizing that you have such a huge network of really high quality people around you you know it really makes life a lot of fun a lot really interesting you know <laughs> yeah so that's absolutely. that's kind of where that's kind of where the social media thing has really become really interesting to me because it's allowed me you know not only to do business in mexico and and connect with a lot of people like Don Sheep, but it's also allowed me to connect with a lot of like minded people like myself mm-hmm.
1: yeah that's awesome Shane and we're you know we're so thankful that you're part of our community, you're one of our leaders as well um and you know it's such an inspiration to so many different people and and we're always you know, I'm, I'm always loving to see what you're doing and, and uh, the legacy you're leaving behind and, and, you know, the family aspect of it with your girls and everything. It's 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 awesome to watch for sure. So super thankful for that. So what's on the horizon for you? What's coming up? Uh, what does the next six months look like? I know you're going to Mexico. Talk about the next six months for Shane Pallister. What does that look like for you?
2: Uh, definitely Mexico. Um, I'm going to be going to Mexico for a long time. Love the people. Love the culture. The hunting's great. <laughs> that's definitely a, a a bonus. I mean, I've met some incredible friends down there, but uh, I think, I think um, right now the girls and I are really, you know, t- talking about the idea of a podcast, the idea of, you know, doing some, some different documentation of, you know, maybe some kind of off the cuff, different kind of stuff than what's normally going on, you know? So I think we're going to delve into that a little bit. My, my girls are both, you know super outdoor oriented and really incredibly uh gifted as far as you know their mental capacity goes they're they're brilliant little girls so they they want to go out and they want to know how to make bows they want to learn how to you know show them how to make arrowheads they want to learn how to make their own arrows they want to tan their own hides like it just goes on and on so we're i definitely want to get them you know moving in that kind of a direction where that's going to be kind of an integral part of their life. And, you know, they're both really, um, excited with the idea of connecting with people and, you know, they both, they both, um, are really interested in the volunteer aspect of things too. So,
1: so do they have any on the horizon? Do they have anything that they, they see themselves obviously, uh, connected to the earth, you know, maybe following in dad's footsteps, maybe a, looking at a guiding career or an outdoor career. Do they have any? I know they're still young, but do they have any sort of
2: uh, uh They both have decided they want to be veterinarians. So um, Maya has been saving 50% of everything she's earned since she's been 10. So she like it's just ingrained in her now that every dollar she makes 50 cents goes into into her savings and she doesn't and sometimes more so they both they're both adamant that they want to be veterinarians and they were just having a discussion with my dad the other day she's like you know what In another's you know when I get out of school in seven years you're going to be calling me Dr. Pallister <laughs> my dad's like oh is that right <clears throat> so they've you know they're very adamant like they you know a lot of kids when they get into teenager they kind of they're like on the fence about hunting sometimes and these two girls are like they're killers they're 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 like little predators they're definitely amazing you know and they're they're inquisitive they want to know how everything works they want to know how you know they they're very they've learned at a very young age about the sanctity of life and they understand what death is and they understand what the enormous responsibility of taking a life and they know you know they know how to care for what they kill and I think I think the pair of them could probably go out and shoot a deer in our field and gut it and skin it and butcher it all by themselves it might it might need a little practice kind of get fine-tuning it but I'm 100 percent confident they'd be able to do it themselves
1: That's- that's
2: a So fantastic thing. yeah, proud dad stuff. I'm a incredibly proud father. Oh,
1: that's cool. I look forward to to hearing more and seeing more of what they're doing. Wait, you, didn't you guys just build a log house? Like what, what's
2: the story? Yeah. With that? Well, yeah, we, um, a friend and I last winter we had a few whiskeys and we're sitting there chit chatting, you know, you know, how some of the best ideas come out of a bottle of Weisers. <laughs> so we're sitting there and, uh, and, uh, he, he's, he's always wanted a log cabin his whole life, you know, like just, it's been one of those dreams, you know, like I think almost every man wants a log cabin, right? So we're sitting there having this chit chat and, you know, he's like, I'm going to buy a, I'm going to buy this cabin. There's this cabin. I'm going to try and move it. And I'm going to talk to your dad about putting it on his place. And I'm like, man, that that seems like a really big deal trying to move something like that. You know, is that even going to be, financially feasible and he's like, Oh yeah, they're gonna sell it to me for like thirty eight, forty thousand dollars and then I'm gonna spend another eighteen thousand to move it. And I'm like, there's a lot more to moving a house than that. Like I've moved a few few of them and I said I just so we're sitting there mulling this over and I go why don't we buy a sawmill and cut all the wood and build a cabin. I I go, because I'd been looking at sawmills. I go, I I know this sawmill at DNL is amazing. For the whole mill, we can get it for like $38,000. bucks. i will build the cabin for you for half the equity in the saw, if you buy the saw. So he's like, okay, it's a deal. So we started doing some drawings on a napkin and thought, oh, you know, we'll go get a permit to cut down some wood and saw this wood up and build a cabin. Well, that's a big job. Like building a cabin's a big job. But cutting down the wood logging it milling it all and cutting it is a monumental job so I think in hindsight I would probably sit down and spend a little more time calculating the man hours and time it took for my side of the deal (laughs) but I mean he's like a brother he's like my brother so for him it was a lifelong dream realized you know and for me it was an incredible learning experience to put it lightly <laughs> and you know we got this cabin built now and got the sawmill uh obviously sawmill is obviously paid for but so we have a sawmill sitting here and we're gonna i think we're gonna build some more cabins and build some small like hunting cabins portable ones you know and sell them that kind of thing so it's something where i can work in the yard with you know having the kids at home and can kind of build cabins when we're not hunting fit in between you know huh. very cool but that
1: yeah it was beautiful i seen some pictures of it and it looked fantastic it looks yeah i and you've never done this thing before you've never built a
2: well i've i mean i've built houses all my life and done right. construction but never anything like that you know so that was a it was definitely a learning experience yeah i built built antler chandeliers all kinds of stuff like that so right we doing a little bit bit more of that this winter, you know, I think we'll put some antler lights in the cabins, those kind of things. But yeah. Yeah. just spend more time at home with the kids, you know, kinda of doing you know, building building we're gonna build some bows this winter, we're gonna build some arrows and nice. make some make some arrowheads, do some things like that. Brew some more wine. Nice. Make a bunch of sausage, all that kind of stuff. You know, just kinda of get back to the basics you know, no, teach fantastic. them, teach them the fundamental kind of simple parts of life, you know, mm-hmm. you know the important do... stuff, right. What's that?
1: The important stuff.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we've had a lot of fun with my, uh, my, me and my buddy, you know, like he, he chopped his wrist with a chainsaw when we were out there. So he's like, I got to go to the hospital. I got to get this sewn up. I'm like, I'll just sew it up at home on the kitchen table, you know? And he's like, yeah, okay, I guess if because I have sutures and stuff, he goes, okay, you could do that, and I'm like, it's no big deal. I've done tons of it, you know. And he's like, and his his girlfriend's a veterinary assistant She and she finds out. She goes, you're not sewing him up, I am. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, during the course of this cabin, we're sewing my buddy up on my kitchen table. Yeah, a lot of fun, that kind of stuff. You know, it's been a, it's been definitely a blast
1: that Wiser's comes in handy for that sort of stuff too. Oh right?
2: yeah. No kidding. I mean, yeah, it was hilarious in mm-hmm. hindsight. He's like, I, I feel kind of bad that you, you know, that's the deal kind of went way more my way than yours. I go, oh, yeah, it did. We'll figure it out. It all uh, comes. Around, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, that's awesome. Shane. I really appreciate you taking the time. I've already taken. So Stephen, I've already taken an hour and a half of your day or almost two hours oh. here. So, Really appreciate it. You're always an inspiration and just uh, love what you're doing in the wild sheep world and uh, the support you give the conservation community and everything you do there. So just really appreciate everything you're doing out there and just keep it up. Look forward to more from you guys and especially from your daughter to see what they, they come up with over the next couple of years. Pretty cool stuff. I'm sure. So,
2: yeah, Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, I, I definitely look forward to being a lot more active in, in wild sheep and conservation in the future. So, Awesome. I'm always here. Ready yeah, to go. So,
1: well, it looks like January, we're getting a bit of a, a different experience with uh, uh sheep show going to the experience now. And uh, so that's going to be, uh, I was hoping to see you down in Reno. That's not going to happen. So uh, we'll have to see what it looks like. Um, and for the wild sheep society, BC, we're not exactly sure what March looks like in our February show in Dawson. So we're just figuring that out. We're going to have a meeting in the coming week and make some decisions on that and what that looks like. But yeah, uh, Hopefully we get uh, post COVID and we get back together and uh, getting together in these locations. Yeah,
2: yeah, about. no kidding. I, I'd actually spoken with um, with uh, Wild Sheep with Gray Thornton here like, about a week and a half ago or something like that. Um, he was looking for for people to be on their promo team, so I'm gonna do what I can to help them out. And awesome. Do what, I'll do what I can to help you guys out as well. Be happy to help.
1: I really appreciate that Shane and uh, yeah like uh, you know I was really disappointed last year we were having you there for the Friday night for uh, you know to speak and stuff so you know obviously we we're gonna have you back um, provided you're able to attend but uh, I'm not sure when or how that looks but uh, just really happy to have you on the on this on the zoom cast today with us so
2: yeah I'd be yeah I'd be honored to, to to do whatever you need
1: Awesome, man. So, anyway, it's enough for your day. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, wishing you all the best. Uh, for any viewers, um, love to hear feedback from you. You guys have been letting us know a little bit how we can improve things, what we can do a little bit better. Um, you know, we're getting great guests on a guy like Shane. If you got somebody you want to see, let us know. We'll see what we can do to get them on the on the Zoomcast. So, have a great day, everyone. Shane, thanks again, Steve. Thanks for all you do, and uh, we'll hopefully get together soon,
2: guys. All right. Thanks, boys. Awesome guys. Cheers.